Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer Gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Welcome everyone to the 1951 Down Place podcast, your home for Hammer Films discussion. This is episode number 39 for November 2014. This is Scott the Noob here on the show. The Grand Masters Casey and Derek will be along pretty soon. Now, November is my birthday month and you listeners get the gifts. And what gift do we have for you today? Well, we've been teasing this episode for quite a while even to the point of some misdirection on our part. You see, despite what the website says and what the podcast file itself says, we are not covering Quatermass in the Pit this month. That's right, it's all been a ruse to hide the real surprise for this month's episode. Today on 1951 Down Place, I've picked the 1968 Hammer Films classic, The Vengeance of She. A yacht in the Mediterranean. A day for quiet pleasures. But for this girl... Disaster calls. What happened? The girl went over the side. George went in after her. Who is she? Where does she come from? The answers lie 2,000 years back. 2,000 years of vengeance that reach into our time to tell the shattering story of a goddess... Ladies and gentlemen, this is Pamela Brown outside the Hobbs End Underground Station where panic has gripped the streets. It seems the coverage announcement of The Vengeance of She by the 1951 Downplace podcast has driven the residents of Hobbs End completely mad. They are demanding that the recording be destroyed immediately. As this tube station is currently undergoing renovations, it seems this deep pit is the perfect place for The Vengeance of She and Downplace's discussion of the film. Officials here have agreed to the demand, stating that they don't care much for the film either. So to make amends for the trouble they have caused, the crew of 1951 Downplace have stated that they will now cover the 1967 Hammer film sci-fi classic Quatermass in the Pit, or, as the Yanks know it, Five Million Years to Earth. The film stars James Donald, Andrew Keir, and Barbara Shelley. It's directed by Roy Ward, Baker, and written by Nigel Neal. The 1951 Downplace podcast will resume after this brief message. Who were they running from? What have they seen? Whom do they fear? There are five million answers to these questions, and every one of them is a shocker. No, stop it! I stop it! Terror, five million years old, spills into our time to make two worlds collide. What is happening here and now can affect the next five million years. It was what I was afraid of. The thing got a huge intake of energy. The very substance of it seemed to be coming alive. And you can't see this world any longer. They feel it. They see it. 
the archaeologist who digs back into the past to unearth more horror than the human mind can bear. Quatermass, the scientist, who comes face to face with five million years of terror. Ronnie, it's Barbara. She's the one. Get down here, quick. She can see into the pit and knows the terrifying truth. He can see into the pit, but he will not believe what he sees. They were coming. Who? What were? Them. Them. He saw the creatures. They were alive. Alive? You descend into the pit of hell as you share their horror. Listen, I'm advising you all to leave. There may be grave danger. I tell you, this could be dangerous. Get back. Get back. In December of 1958, we heard, well, not we because we weren't there, but listeners in the UK heard the last installment of the Quatermass and the Pit serial on radio. This was another adventure starring everybody's favorite astrophysicist or scientist or whatever the heck he was back then, Bernard Quatermass. And Hammer picked up the rights to this production and they were going to make a film, but they sat on it for years. Eventually, in 1967, they released... Quatermass in the Pit. It was released as 5 million years to Earth here in the States. This is the third time Quatermass would appear in a Hammer film, and this is the movie that we're talking about on this episode of 1951 Downplays, our November episode, which means it was Scott's pick since November is his birthday month. Scott Morris is here, Casey Criswell is here, and I'm Derek M. Cook. How's it going, guys? Hello. It's going great. I'm glad to revisit the leader of our Hammer Avengers. <laughs> now, is it truly the leader of our Hammer Adventures, though? Which which Quatermass are you going with? Oh, that's a tough one for me. <laughs> I know where Scott's going to fall on this one, but it's a tough one for me. I, I, I'm going to side uh, with uh, Mr. Um, uh, Nigel Neal, and this is his favorite. Is it really his favorite, or just the other two are his least favorite? <laughs> this- <laughs> That that's a good point. He was actually um, um, he so, kind of finally, finally signed off on this one when Hammer assured them that Brian Dunleavy would not be Quatermass in this film. <laughs> and I really struggled with that man, but we'll get into it. Now I'm going to say it now. My Quatermass is black and white and drunk. Okay, <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I agree. <laughs> I w- I will be honest. This is my favorite of the Quatermass films, but I, I do like Dunleavy quite a bit. Having said that, I don't think he would work in this film. I don't think that character style would have worked in this investigation. Yeah. I just liked his, I'm a scientist, damn it, asshole personality in the, <laughs> you know, from Brian Dunleavy. That was fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. He said the story is definitely uh, different in terms of the style the, the previous two Quatermass films it has a, a little bit more of a detached kind of very documentary-like film, especially in the first one. This one's more of a adventure kind of thing. I know there's a slightly different style, and I think you're right. Don Levy probably would not have worked as well in this. 
Now, I know... That's sad, yeah. This is my favorite film I know, and I don't think, Derek, you hadn't seen this before. Is that correct? So this is something, and I'm going to talk about this on an upcoming episode of Monster Kid Radio, too. Being a fan of classic monster and genre films, I've watched a lot of documentaries over the years and read a lot of books about this stuff. And I've seen clips and read synopses and seen stills of a ton of movies out there that I have yet to see. Quatermass in the Pit is one of these movies that I had heard about, I'd seen clips of, I'd read about it, I knew what it was, but I've never sat down to see it start to finish. There are a handful of classic monster movies that I think are must-sees that are kind of like this for me. And Quatermass in the Pit was one of them. And when we started 1951 Down Place, I intentionally stayed away from this movie because I knew eventually you were going to pick it, Scott, as a, a birthday pick. And I wanted the opportunity to kind of come to this film the way you've come to a lot of movies here on the show. Totally fresh. First time for the show. And so in that, in this way, this is kind of a Freaky Friday kind of episode for me of the podcast because here we are with a movie that you're very familiar with and I'm not. Are we 70s Freaky Friday or that trashy 90s version? Basically, I'm saying I'm Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm tra- I'm definitely trashy 90s virgin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was more well, a fan of the original. <laughs> Derek's uh, angle coming into this because I had seen, I knew I had seen Quatermass in the Pit before, but it had been a long time because I think I came across that one early on when I first discovered Hammer like 10, 12 years ago or 10 years ago or so. Um, so I knew I'd seen it before so i sit down when i started watching it this time apparently i'd only watched like half of it before so about the time that they discover what's behind the wall uh in the movie in the missile um (laughs) that's when all of a sudden i don't remember any of that so it was kind of exciting this time around it's like wow there's a lot way more than this than i remember (laughs) well there's one thing i want to ask you too then because you are not as familiar with the film did you guys get an X, X Files vibe off this film? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There, there's a lot going on here, and you know, as we get into it, I got an X Files vibe, and then a very strong vibe of something else that's very near and dear to my heart, and we'll we'll, we'll get to it, I'm sure. Bacon? No, but not, you're not quite. bacon. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. This vegetarian didn't really get that vibe. Tofu bacon. <laughs> now I'll just what I'll say it. Lovecraft. This is a very Lovecraftian story. I was going to ask you that later on. Yeah, yeah. which, and I know, Scott, you don't have a huge experience with Lovecraft stuff, but knowing now that this is one of your favorite films, I I would question that now because this is very Lovecraftian. It's not the tentacles and Cthulhu and all that stuff, but it's very in the mouth of, or excuse me, in the Mountains of Madness style of crafty in, in some ways. And there's some other stuff going on too. That's just amazing to me. So, and it makes me wish Hammer had done a proper Lovecraft adaptation. I really think that would have been awesome. Yeah. Um, just to give you everyone listening a little bit of a background of how I came upon this movie. Oh, uh, we don't care. We were just going to, no, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Several years. Whatever birthday, birthday boy. Yeah. Several years ago, I attended a, a B-movie celebration um, at um, in uh, Franklin, Indiana. And while at the film, we went, it was one night that they had the drive-in portion. And unfortunately, it started raining. And uh, I was there with my wife, and uh, Nick Brown from the B-movie cast was there. And 
Unfortunately, I'm blanking on the other gentleman's name. He was the uh, director of the the zombie movie from Louisville, uh, Bad Moon Rising or Dead Moon Rising, something like that. But the four of us, we were at the drive-in and it started raining, and we decided that uh, it was kind of a bad. What I don't even remember what they were showing, but uh, I think it was Nick made the comment that over at the regular theater, they were getting ready to show Quatermass in the Pit. And I had never even heard of the film at this point. And they were showing an original print in the theater. So the four of us decided to leave the drive and went over to the theater. And I think we were the only ones in the theater to watch this. And it was amazing. I was just completely blown away by this film. I had never seen anything like it. And it, it instantly became one of my favorite movies from that viewing and I had since seeked it out. Um, I've actually purchased, you know, I've got a multi-region Blu-ray player, so I've got the Blu-ray version that was released in the UK for this film. And the reason I got the multi-region um, Blu-ray player was not for this show, was not for her to watch a lot of movies from over there or anything. It was to get this Blu-ray. <laughs> nice. Uh, so that's that's my background with this film, and I've seen it several times since then. So, yeah, it is a Freaky Friday version of Downplay Still. Yeah, yeah. Well, Hammer's background with the film, I mentioned at the top, it was a serial. And I think I kind of said that it was a radio show. It wasn't radio. It was television. So I misspoke there. But it was a six-part TV series uh, in the BB- or on the BBC starring Andre Morel and Michael Ripper, a couple of Hammer regulars. And Hammer picked up the rights to it with the intention of making a film out of it. And it just didn't happen for a while. At one point, and I've got a quote here from Michael Carreras. Well, the head honchos at Hammer. They were talking about movies they were going to make, but this one, Hammer Films steers clear of science fiction. Science fiction is, excuse me, Hammer Films steers clear of science fiction. Science fiction films are not easy to make. They call for lots of trick photography, which sends the budget soaring, and faking has got to be good. Teenagers are quick to spot the inaccuracies. So they sat on it, even though they had the rights on it, you know, for it for a while. I mean, they'd done the previous two Quatermass films, but, you know, the writer <laughs> uh, was not overly impressed with Dunleavy's performance, so you know their relationship wasn't the warmest at the time. But eventually, they got around to making the film, yeah, starring was, Andrew Keir. Yeah, that was Nigel Neal was the writer. Yes. Yeah. So Andrew Keir comes in to fill in the role uh, left or left empty or vacant by Brian Dunleavy. Although I did read something saying that he wasn't the original guy that Hammer had in mind for him for the role. You Peter Cushing at one point was approached or was considered? Yes, Peter Cushing uh, was originally approached to be Quatermass in this film. Now, that mm. would have been awesome. Yeah, I, I would have loved to have seen that because I think he would have been perfect for that role. Oh, it would have been, wow. <laughs> <laughs> if that had happened, you guys would have seen this film already. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I believe Val Guest was assigned as the director at one point as well, and he was involved in the previous two films. But you know, it took him so long to get this movie off the ground and scheduling and everything. It eventually went to Roy Ward Baker uh, to direct for the film, or to direct the film. And he had been doing a lot of television up until this point. He'd done some films before, but he'd been doing a lot of TV pretty consistently before coming back to film with Quatermass in the Pit. This is not the first time Andrew Keir, or excuse me, this is not the only time that Andrew Keir and Peter Cushing kind of hovered around the same role. You know, when we finally get to it, there's a mummy film that Peter Cushing was cast in, but when his wife passed away, he left, and Keir was brought in basically over a weekend to take over the lead role. So, 
I, w- I wanted to read a quote that I came across about uh, from uh, Roy Ward Baker, the director of this film. Uh, he was looking for a film to do after five years of TV work. Right. And he was given this script, and he said, once I read the script, I thought, this is it. This was the most wonderfully bogus, believable claptrap I had ever read in my life. <laughs> I just love that quote. <laughs> nice. While Neil was involved with writing the script, he came to the set a couple of times. It seems like Hammer was pretty well open to having him you know, more involved in the production, which may have been a condition considering how unhappy – he made it known <laughs> he was with Dunleavy's performance. Uh, the movie was shot in 1967, was completed in April of 67 and released in September of 67. There were some changes made between the television version and the film version. Uh, the film version, there were some budgetary concerns, so they ended up cutting the budget down a little bit from what they originally intended. At one point, the movie was just going to be called The Pit. So there were some changes that were made from the time they picked up the rights to the production and they actually finished the film. We talked about Andrew Keir being one of the leads of the film, but it's also got Barbara Shelley, which, you know, Hammer Mainstay, and she's great in this. Oh, she steals this film for me. Yeah. She's she's amazing in this film. And I also think, I know that uh, we've talked several times about um, different women in different Hammer films and maybe the way they're dressed or whatever. She's the most conservatively dressed in a Hammer film, but I think she's probably, the, in my mind, the most beautiful one that we've run across in this film. I just, I, I, I fell in love with her in this film. And I know I my wife's, wife's going to hear this, but I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, to further illustrate the fact for anybody who hasn't been paying attention, 1951 Downplace is co-hosted by three guys. Uh, <laughs> I found her gorgeous in this man, and you're right; she is the most conservatively dressed that we've seen her in any Hammer film, uh, any woman in a Hammer film. But gosh, she's beautiful in this man. I want to go run off man. and have science adventures with her. <laughs> I'm glad you said science adventures. <laughs> um, it was interesting, though, like the conservative nature of her costumes, because at the same time, it seemed like they didn't know exactly how they wanted to present her. Because it, sometimes she came across almost like matronly with the clothes they had her in. But then all, by the end of the movie, she looked more like a schoolgirl. Uh-huh. And I know it's like styles of the year. <laughs> it's things like that. But True. And that's not oh schoolgirl. I'm talking about the plaid skirt <laughs> yes. and sweater and stuff that seemed pretty typical of the era. Right. They also, I think, also had a little bit of a difficult of how to portray her character. Because in the beginning of the film, I got this, oh, she's just an assistant. She's the one that goes and gets coffee uh, yeah. for Dr. Roney. But later on in the film, I saw her more as an, as an equal to him and to Quatermass. Yeah. Uh, I think especially with Quatermass, he really does kind of view her as an essential part of the team that he's working with at this point, which is a change. It's not the Dunlevian style of Quatermass. <laughs> Go get me some coffee now. You know, <laughs> Whereas, well, it's also yeah. it's also good commentary on the time too. True, because she see because he sees her as an equal, and it's obvious that not everybody in the film sees her as an equal. So, I mean, they had some good commentary there too. And this also leads me to the X-Files vibe quite a bit in the film as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She I, did have the uh, Scully redhead thing going. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
I did like her chemistry with Kier. I thought the two of them were awesome together. And I think it's telling that the very final shot is the two of them on screen together. I mean, it just, it's great. So I did like them a lot. Uh, cast wise, was there anybody else that stood out for you? I didn't look up his name, but the uh, biologist in this I thought was really good. Dr. J- Roney? Yes. James Donald is the, uh, is the actor there. He was in uh, The Great Escape, wasn't he? I think so. And mm-hmm. also The Bridge of the River Kwai. That's where I remember him from. Lo- that's one of my uh, favorite war films. And I, I remember him from that film. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan, so I got to mention Colonel Breen was played by Julian Glover who was in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and he's a jerk in this movie, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to round out his jerkiness and to go into my 007 Uh, connection, (laughs) he also played Eris Christasis in For Your Eyes Only, the main bad guy. (laughs) Da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. Right on. I liked him in this a lot. Yeah, I did too. And I, you know, to extend the um, Indiana Jones reference, I like how he goes at the end of the film. I like what happens to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was in Empire Strikes Back, and I guess he, he's on Game of Thrones now and all that. But yeah, I, I will always know him as Indiana Jones, you know, as Walter Donovan. You know, the, yeah, the actually, actually, he jumped out yeah. at me as um, Christostas, so. Yeah. It's just what what you've seen more of, I guess. Who would win in a fight, Scott? Indiana Jones or James Bond? Um, James Bond because he has more gadgets and can take Indiana Jones out from farther away. As long uh, as he could, as long as he could take out the uh, the fridge at the same time. I quit. <laughs> <laughs> if it was hand to hand, that's different. Bond has the gadgets he could take him out from farther away. So he'd cheat. Technically, though, in a case of <laughs> Bond versus Indiana Jones, wouldn't that be child abuse? What? <laughs> Going back to Last Crusade? Yes. <sighs> <laughs> Any Disney connections? <laughs> Moving on. Outside of the fact that Disney owns Indiana Jones, though. <laughs> Own Star Wars and going yeah. Empire Strikes Back too. <laughs> I didn't come up with any Disney connections, but I didn't look for any either. So the music in the film uh, was interesting. It's different than what they had in the previous two films. It's by a guy by the name of Tristram Car- Tristram Carey, who is known for using a lot of electronic music, that sort of thing. He'd done a couple of other Hammer films. I thought the score was okay, if a little inappropriately placed at times. There are some big swelling moments that feel very original Star Trek to me. They seem a little out of place, but other than that, the music was okay. It was directed well, shot well. It looked great. The color was amazing. Yeah, speaking of what my complaint about the music, it got a little repetitive. Yeah. It did have a very TV feel to it. There's a couple of scenes, too, where I felt like as the characters were walking out of a scene, especially in the underground station, the music would sw- swell, and I, it might have even faded to black. It's like, that's where the commercial goes, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it had that kind of vibe to it. So It did It did feel a little choppy in that sense. Yeah. 
Well, anything else we want to talk about the behind the scene players before we start talking about the plot? We've hit the we've hit the highlights, I think. I mean, unless you want to talk about Barbara Shelley some more. I'm always <laughs> up for talking about Barbara Shelley. All right. Isn't she pretty? <laughs> Yeah, you, you need to you need to actually go out and look. There's a pro- promotional still of Barbara Shelley in the red sweater, the plaid skirt, sitting on a bicycle. You guys need to find that picture. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I'm gonna. <laughs> You know, I didn't pull it out for this, but I, oh, wow. (laughs) You found the picture, didn't you? (laughs) Wow. No, 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 I didn't pull out my Hammer Glamour book. I bet it's in there, right? It is not in there. Oh, wow. I did, I did look that. There's a picture of her in the red sweater, a full page in the Hammer Glamour book. But there is. I got it. (laughs) Casey found it. (laughs) That is a good picture. Also, Derek, how much how much are you gonna pay me to leave that I pulled it out comment? <laughs> We're three dudes. Come on, whatever. <laughs> yeah, there, there's that's that's one. There's like a whole photo set, a photo shoot from that um, where she's on that bike, and there's different views of it. All of them have quite a bit of leg shot. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of photos in the Hammer story, the authorized history of Hammer Films book. Marcus Hearn and Alan Barnes were the artists on that. There's a very small photo of the day that Peter Cushing came to the set to check it out. Uh, I guess to see what he could have been in, I suppose. That's a picture of him and Michael Carreras and some other folks. Uh, Nigel Neal and his family are there as well. And it's when they were uh, at the Borehamwood set, this was not shot at Elstree or Bray. This was shot elsewhere and... Uh, it definitely has a different feel than a lot of the other Hammer films. I think partly because of that as well. So, But no picture of Barbara Shelley in here. Come on, guys. You let me down. One thing I wanted to ask you guys before we really get into the plot is what did you think of the design of the aliens? That's Spoiler. Some... <laughs> well, we're going to get to it eventually. Ruh-roh. <laughs> But that's that's one thing we haven't seen too much in Hammer films is a completely non-humanoid monster. I mean, we've got you know your Draculas, you got your Frankenstein's, but they're still based on a human. They're still humanoid, yeah. They're still two legs, two feet, mammalian, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting, though, because you could see, for me, the opinion varies because there's two different takes on these guys in this movie on the way they're presented. So when we first get introduced to them and they're just kind of lying there, they were they're not great because, I mean, it's pretty obvious what they're made of, you know, and it's just some bent wire with some material over it and things like that. And they look pretty chintzy when they're moving around, pulling them out of the ship. But then when you get later in the movie and you start to see more images of them in motion and then especially in the very climax of the movie, I thought they were great. So the design itself, the concept, I think, is really good and it's solid and it's different for, you know, in the sake of what most 
uh, sci-fi alien movies are, they they did something different. So that was cool too, especially for that era. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I really liked about it is, yeah, it's based on something that, you know, it looks like a, a big grasshopper, basically. But it's not humanoid, and that's what I really appreciated about this film. And there's a scene where we first see them in movement when when we were watching somebody's memories. Yeah. That is one of the most creepiest things I've ever seen on film, when you take it all in context, to me anyway. I've always thought that was really creepy. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, to me, that well, you know, as soon as they start showing those memories and you see them in motion, I think they're great. It's just when they first discover them, they're laying there, they look pretty cheap. Yeah. I really like this. I'm with Casey. I think the concept is great because it is something totally different, something that we would not expect. You know, it's completely out of left field, especially for a Hammer film. It's still familiar enough to us that we're, we're able to kind of identify, you know, what's the head, what's this or that. They are giant grasshoppers. <laughs> yeah. I disagree. I'm opposite of Casey, and I think I might be opposite of you too, Scott, though. When they start moving around, that's when I start to think, okay, they're just big grasshoppers. When they're moving, when they're just still, to me, that's when they're more effective. Because now I'm forced to try to imagine how they really do move. Do they move like, you know, grasshoppers really move or do they move some other way? But I still think they're pretty freaking cool. <laughs> well, like I said, the the scene where we're watching the memories, if you take it all in context and, and when they're trying to explain what's going on there, that just is really creepy to me. And that's what really sold me. When I first saw this movie, when it came up to that scene, you know, I was enjoying the ride up to that point and trying to, you know, you know, when you're watching a movie, you're trying to second guess or not second guess, but trying to anticipate what's going to happen. And when they actually at that point, when you learn more about what's going on in this plot, it really surprised me. And I loved it. I just loved the fact of, of where they were going. It was something that I never thought I'd see in a movie. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but that's one of the reasons what really sold me on this movie and why it is my number one. And, you know, spoiler alert, my number one's not changing when we get to the end of this uh, recording. So. (laughs) I really liked it. I really, really liked how that, that it was something totally different, totally off the wall. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Are we ready to get into the plot proper? Do it to it. <laughs> well, we start off. Uh, there's a public works project going on to expand the London Underground, the tube system, at Hobbs End, where one of the construction workers, as they're digging in the mud there, uh, discovers a skull amongst all of the dirt and the rocks and everything that's going on. And of course, that brings the whole project to a halt because we found a skull. But it's it's kind of an odd looking skull. So they figured that they're it must be an older type of thing. And Derek just <laughs> distracted me by sending me something. <laughs> Grasshoppers. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that is freaking creepy. <laughs> I'm going back to the picture of Barbara Shelley. <laughs> I 
I sent that to you. You know what? We were talking about grasshopper aliens and all that. You can include this or not. I don't know. It might be an interesting aside. Uh, last year or the year before that at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, there was a short movie called Grasshopper Shown. And I'm trying to say it as enthusiastically as possible despite the fact that I'm still battling the tail end of a cold. The name of the movie is Grasshopper with an exclamation mark at the end of it. And it's a modern day movie where there's this guy who's going after this thing he keeps talking about this big thing that he's got to just go kill and the cops think he's going nuts he's running around with a rifle or a shotgun or something like that and it's a big freaking grasshopper and it's talking about the quatermass in the pit aliens and this grasshopper made me think of that and i was hoping to maybe go find a still or a video or something online of that that i could share with you too unfortunately what i found was (laughs) this woman wearing this weird Grasshopper costume. <laughs> I'm all flummoxed. <laughs> Let's go back to the pit with um, our construction workers finding the skulls. <laughs> These uh, skulls are, like I said, they're unusually shaped, so they call in a paleontologist. And that's they probably would have called somebody in anyway, whether they were unusually shaped or not. What do you think? Well, <laughs> instead of calling like a medical examiner. Or the cops. Or the cops. <laughs> well, the, yeah. They call in Dr. Roney, who is a uh, paleontologist. And he immediately identifies these as older, like five million years old. And he brings in probably some students from the local university. They're all in there doing very tedious work uh, cleaning off the mud and the dirt, finding more bodies. They find a scapula. They find, eventually they find an entire skeleton of one of these, uh, uh, one of our descendant, not descendants, what's the opposite of descendant? Ancestor. Ancestor uh, from the human race. As they're cleaning out and they're looking through all this, they one of the workers finds what they think is a water line or a sewage line or something, a piece of metal that they can't uh, dig through. So they've got this wall of dirt that they've cleaned out this little hole and they find the pipe. At least that's what they think is a pipe. They end up uh, calling in a couple of people to look at it. They can't figure out what it is. They end up calling the military in because they think it might be something because there's no pipes in the area. So, the military immediately think, you know, this is late 60s, London, maybe it's uh, remnants from World War II, one of the exploding bombs. And I guess the the cast of um, 10 Seconds to Hell wasn't available to come and look. You <laughs> <laughs> can't get Jack Palance. So. Couldn't get Jack Palance to come and take a look. Nice callback. <laughs> well done. So they, they look at the, the little, what they've cleaned out so far. The first thing you notice is their magnetic stethoscope won't stick to it. It slides right down. They can't hear anything inside of it. So they end up calling uh, Colonel Breen. Julian Glover. Julian Glover. Now, Colonel Breen, he's just about ready to be put in charge of the rocket program that uh, Quatermass is, uh, is a part of. Now, Colonel Green has a history of... German weaponry. That's what he did during the world in the war. He was an expert on their weaponry. He also defused many bombs. So they are going to call him in because they don't know what this is. Well, we go to a scene uh, where Quatermass is being told that Colonel Breen is going to be put on his project. And of course, Quatermass, this is the only time we get a tie in to the old 
style of Quatermass because he immediately blows up saying, I'm not, I'm, I'll quit before I work with him and everything. This I is, will argue with this at the <laughs> toppest levels, at the highest levels. Don't do that because that's where it came from. <laughs> that's where the order came from, John Reese Davies. I mean, Dr. Quatermass. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's the only time that we get it, you know, the Quatermass that you guys are more used to seeing. He's, he's playing it like that. But immediately, the you know after that's been they've been told that uh, Colonel Breen invites Quatermass for dinner, saying that you know let's try to work this out or whatever. Uh, Colonel Breen gets um, a message brought to him about what's going on at uh, the Hobbs End station. Colonel Breen invites Quatermass to stop by to ride out with him and, and take a look at this. He said it won't be too long, and then we can go for, go to dinner. Colonel Green gets there and. Um, you know, after they've got this whole area blocked off, they've um, they've they've taken out all the paleontologists and all the students that are working and everything. Um, Green immediately says it's some sort of missile that's unexploded. They need to clean it out a lot more. He he sees um, Doctor Roney there because they find another skull that's actually impacted into what like an intake valve or something from the engine. They pull this thing out. Green is so upset that there's a civilian in there, and he orders him out, tells him to go away, of course. Green is a very, I, I don't want to say stereotypical or cliched, because you know that might be unfair to the performer or the director, but he is our military antagonist. He has a very set way of thinking about things and doing things and, there's an order to these things and that order by God is ruled by me because I'm the ranking military official. And I just, I love the, the characterization of this guy, you know, and he, he's constantly, I mean, we talk about Quatermass having that hair trigger in the previous two films. I feel like Breen kind of has it a little bit in this one. And yeah. I, and, and I do like that because it is a familiar kind of approach to the Quatermass films that we saw in the previous two films. It just happens to be on the other side. You know, we were talking about how Quatermass is told Breen's going to be put in charge of the program, and Quatermass is very defensive about it, partly because it's his program. He's the one that brought it into being. But then also because Breen makes it pretty clear, the only reason I'm taking over this program is because I want to put a base on the moon before anybody else so that I can point missiles at my enemies. Yeah, he says, I'm going to, we're going to put missiles on the moon and possibly Mars, and Quatermass immediately says military bases. Yeah, exactly. So there's an immediate disconnect between the two approaches of how they're going to interact in the film or how they're going to be heroes or leads in the film. But I love their chemistry together, too. I still love how they kind of spark against each other. Yeah. Do you guys see is it just me or do you guys see some relevance to today in this care in the you know in the way that they portray the government and the scientists together oh, sure. oh, going yeah. dealing at this? I yeah. think it's really relevant to today. It's pretty interesting to see. Well, I, I think like, the, I'm sorry, go ahead, Scott. No, go ahead, Derek. No, no, no. It's your birthday month. <laughs> I was gonna go on with the plot, so go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's one of the reasons why this movie may resonate with more people than the previous two films. I feel like overall, when I go online and look at message boards or we have conversations on Facebook, uh, and maybe I, I, I hate to speak to, for Casey, but I feel like maybe Casey and I are in the minority that we really like the Brian Dunleavy approach and we yeah. prefer that those two movies. I feel like this one gets a little bit more recognition and it's probably a little bit more resonant 
from the late 60s on because of that, because of the military versus science, the, the humanistic approach versus the, the might makes right approach. The, there's a lot going on here that no matter where we are in our history from 1967 on, since that's when this movie came out, we can apply what's happening now to what was being done in the film. Whereas the other two movies are great, but they're not necessarily as resonant. I think that's part of it, but I also think that the story in this movie, in Quatermass and the Pit particularly, is far more thought out, far fuller of a story that we saw in the in the earlier movies. And as far as science fiction, I think it's a more re- well-rounded science fiction film. It a, feels more like what you'd hear in a, you know read in a plot of a science fiction novel and stuff. So I think that helps it a lot too. True, true. It's a much bigger production as well. There's more yeah. going on here, yeah. Well, one of the things that you, you just mentioned, the interaction between Breen and Quatermass, one of the things that I like is, and I'm going to throw Roni in there too, Roni is what you would typically think of as the scientist at this time, and Breen can easily control him. So he immediately, he's ordered him out, he, and, and Roni's got, you know, at the beginning of the film, he's in there, he's finding all of these uh, skeletons, but he's so involved in that and he doesn't care about anything else. Breen sees this danger in here. He sees this rocket, unexplode bomb. He doesn't care about these skeletons anymore. He doesn't care about Roni's like get him out of there. So you've got that interaction with science, but then you've got Quatermass who already has a setup of antagonistic feelings for Breen and Quatermass is sitting there you know, he was not even supposed to be there. He's just brought on by Breen because they were going to dinner. And when they find that skeleton that I mentioned that was sort of in the intake area, he asks, uh, Quatermass asks Roni, you know, how intact is it? And he says, it's almost perfect. It's the, it's the best one that we found. So he's immediately thinking of how do these two things interact with each other? How does this missile and these skeletons, fossils, interact and he's the one that tells tells Breen that, you know, explain to me how this rocket came in here and didn't bust up these fossils. So you've got Quatermass using scientific theory and scientific method to think of how do these things interact. You've got Roni only caring about the, the skeletons, and you've got Breen only looking at the rocket. And I love the interaction between the three of them in, the, in this early scene. I, I like that in this film... The scientists aren't just all generically labeled scientists. Yes. Dr. Roney yeah. is a, a very distinct character. And you get a little bit of that in the previous two films, but not just the characterization, but the their field of expertise. And like you said, Scott, that's a really good point because Roney is focused solely on the fossils and that weird sculpture that he made underground <laughs> of, of what he thought the monster, the monster, the the ancient man looked like. I mean, that's his focus. Whereas Quatermass is this overall kind of approach. We talked about how Breen didn't want Quatermass to even be there. I love the scene where Breen gets out of the car to go to the state underground station and Quatermass is about to get out of the car. And is it Breen like trying to close the door on Quatermass, not realizing he was behind him in the car trying to get out? Hits him in the leg. Yeah. And they give us this great look like Quatermass is looking at him like really motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) It It was awesome. I also love too, though, like uh, with the biologist in Quartermass or Quatermass. Sorry, um, I liked how I do that all the time. 
Oh, what was this a biologist named Rooney? Yeah, Rony. Dr. Rony. Rony. Um, I liked how at the beginning of the movie we see Rony, like he said, he is he's kind of uh oh towed under with by the by Breen, you know, and kind of meek and mild, and he's just doing he's following the rules and doing what he's supposed to while still trying to do his own thing. But throughout the course of the movie, once he starts getting in touch with Quatermass and start working with Quatermass, it starts to bring him out of his shell too. Thankfully, since it's kind of not to get too far ahead. We need Dr. Roney to be a little bit more than just the guy who's playing in the mud. So, <laughs> Yeah, but they had really great character development yeah. in there, too. So not only were they not just... So not only is he... Oh, okay. So, But not only are they presented... They're not presented as just generic scientists, like you said. They have distinct fields and everything like that. So they're well thought out there. But they have character development, too. Which you don't see a lot with scientists in sci-fi movies of this age. They're just scientists doing science. <gasps> science! Science! <laughs> Agreed. I also like the fact that um, it's obvious that before this happened, you know, in movies today, when you th- when two scientists get together, they seem to know each other already. It seemed like yeah. Quatermass and Roni didn't know each other, but they're willing to work with each other, which right. I thought yeah, was kind of cool. They recognize that they both of them were, you know, experts in their fields, so they're not even going to, you know, they're going to do away with any pretense and just get to work. Yep. For science. For science. Science. Well, and the other reason we need Roni is because he brings Barbara Shelley into the film. <laughs> <laughs> that was nice of him. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was very thoughtful. <laughs> because we see her there helping clean off the skulls and put everything together. She at at first I thought she was just kind of Roni's assistant or secretary or something, but she she's needed as well. But this is her introduction in the film too. I like her. <laughs> now they also colonel breen actually goes over the civil records of the world war ii in Mm -hmm. hobbs end and they find that there was uh, only incendiary bombs there was no uh, missiles in this area which is another unusual thing they also find that these bombs just did structural damage to the houses on the street but there was nobody living in those houses to begin with, which seems kind of odd. And there's a, a policeman or a Bobby down there in the uh, pit with them. <laughs> yeah. And Quatermass starts a, a conversation with him uh, about the houses above. And he's actually from this area. And he said, yeah, there was nobody in these houses during the war. Uh, there was some damage to them. And they decide that they're going to go look. And, and so we've got Quatermass, we've got the, the police officer, and uh, we've got um, uh, Barbara, who is uh, Barbara Shelley's character, Barbara Judd, going up to take a look at these houses. And they go into one of the houses that's above the pit, this run-down, bombed-out house, which seemed odd, kind of odd to me to begin with that they would have left it in, in a bombed-out state, you know, 10, 12 years after the war had ended. But but as you're in there, this is kind of a really... The, the police officer, he's getting all... You see the sweat just starting to... Uh, on his face, and he just does not want to be there. There's something wrong in that area. You also see on the walls, which is I thought was really creepy, was fingernail scratch marks all over the place. Like something really terrible had happened there or somebody was just going crazy in there. And the police officer explains that there was a lot of 
of that type of, you know, people hearing bumps in the night, uh, people just being unsettled and uncomfortable and not wanting to stay there above this um, dig site, you know, even before it was a dig site. They also, yeah, it's when they started building the subway station, right? Mm-hmm. And they also, you know, he, the, the cop is also saying that there was ghost stories of people seeing ghosts in the area. <laughs> They're in the house and the door slams shut. And of course, that at that point, the, the police officer, he's, he's had enough and he wants out of there. And he, he runs out of the house and uh, the professor and Barbara Judd follow him out. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. I just, you know, the, the policeman was just stepping all over himself, apologizing for being in there, you know, running out. It's a good creepy scene. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, the exploration of the quote unquote haunted house was pretty nice. I like the way the brain is trying to blow, you know, brush it off. You know, we evacuated, you know, there was the war and the cops like, no, nah, it's not really what happened. Come here, governor. I'll show you what yes. happened. Yeah. There wasn't anybody in these houses before the war started. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I this movie's it's well written, well crafted. Yeah, I did think it was funny though. On these scientists, especially you know, for scientists, you know, trying to uncover this big thing and doing all this research, man, they got lucky that they had so much, so many details of the history of that area throughout. Even back back to the Neanderthal days, it seemed like they had a lot of details. <laughs> Well, that's, you know, that's the next thing you see. Breen orders his men to completely uncover the rocket. And it's going to take all night. So he's he's ready to leave. He's like, there's nothing more for me to do here until they uncover it. So Quatermass tells him, oh, I'm going to stick around and do some more investigation. You you can go leave. So he leaves. And they're out still outside. And he and Barbara, Shell, or Barbara Judd see the old street sign, which instead of... Uh, Hobbs Lane with two B's. It's just Hob Lane with one B. And Barbara says Hob used to be a nickname for the devil. Further, of course it did. Yeah, of course. You know, further explaining. You know, further showing how evil things have happened in here over the years. They even named the street the Devil's Lane. But they did that a couple times, and they. I, that's one thing I liked about the science fiction of this is because the when uh, Quatermass was first shown the the ship, and they went down there and he's investigating it, and they found that uh, design etched in the wall there inside the ship, and he started talking about how it looked like a pentacle, you know, and then talking about the paganism and stuff. Then they got into this stuff with the Hobbs End and stuff like that. So they did a really great job of kind of how. The general populace, their first thought is the stuff that's more supernatural and paranormal instead of scientific in those ages when they come across that stuff. I just thought that was a nice touch. Nice storytelling touch. Yeah, I agree. Well, Quatermass then goes back to uh, Roni's lab at the at the local museum. And this is one of the at first time I saw this, I'm like, what are we going? Why are we doing this? Because they're starting off with this experiment to map brain functions. And they've got this volunteer there that because his head is a similar shape to some of our ancient ancestors. And they've got a colander well, that's on. That's a hell of a compliment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they got this colander on his head with wires coming out of it. And they're, they've got all this. <laughs> hey, Slopey, come here. Sit in this chair. <laughs> 
and I don't know if you noticed, but uh, you know they're trying to map his memories or thoughts or whatever. Did you notice what film showed up when they were showing his memories? What that little scene they showed on the TV? You know where it's from? Mm. Four sided triangle. Oh, really? Oh, yes. nice. <laughs> It's it's one of the scenes early on in Four Sided Triangle where they're just sh- showing the the sights of the little town. So it's it's like he's remembering, you know, his hometown or something, or maybe when he watched Four Sided Triangle. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, down in the uh, subway tunnel, they have a poster for Hammer's The Witches uh, on the wall. Yep. And there, there was a, a couple other movie posters. I didn't. I think the reptile was one of them as well. Yeah, I couldn't identify, but I did see the witches for sure. But that's cool. I didn't realize it was four sided triangle. <laughs> I remember when I was in love with this girl. <laughs> love me, so I made a clone. <laughs> Spoiler. Spoiler. Yep. <laughs> well, Quatermass. You know, after this experiment, Quatermass asked uh, Roni if he thinks that the apes that they have found are terrestrial, which. Roni replies that, yeah, sorry to burst your bubble, but they're most definitely terrestrial. Did that seem to come out of the blue for you? It was, I knew that this movie is about, you know, that, but it did seem like Quatermass was eager to go to aliens pretty quick for me. Hmm. Well, I don't I, know. If it's I, the same Quatermass, he did fight that giant monster or whatever in the other one. And so who knows? Well, I think that at this point they already realized that it was a rocket and I, the signs pointed that it wasn't a German rocket. I mean, it wasn't, it was a metal, but it wasn't able to be magnetic. And there was other things going on and everything else. I think Quatermass say, thought to himself, it's a rocket. It didn't come from here. So I think that's what he was trying to work on that, that thought that, yeah, it's, this is an alien rocket. I think he had that thought already. So it didn't really jump out of the blue for me. I think it was just him experimenting, you know, saying, well, maybe these skeletons were the pilots of this rocket. But of course, gotcha. of course, they, they're terrestrial. And um, so that rules out that, the, that they're, they were passengers. Or does it? <laughs> we'll find out a little bit more later. But they, they go back to the dig and... Um, or actually, Quatermass leaves and he's heading back to the dig, but he gets stopped by Barbara. Now, Barbara's done some research on her own. This is one of the first signs where you see that she's she's got a scientific mind of her own. She's not just there to get the coffee. Because she's done some research and found tons of newspaper reports about incidents at Hobbs End over the years. None of them very big, but when taken in totalitary, there are some really creepy things that have gone on. Including... Uh, one where they find a small dwarf-like figure, this guy says, that could leap through walls. And they found that many of them happened during the construction of the original Hobbs End underground station. Of course, Quatermass, you know, he's scoffing at this at the beginning because he doesn't see this as science. You know, ghosts, ghosts aren't scientific. But then he's a little intrigued with it, and they do some more research, and they end up going all the way to the Latin archives at Westminster Abbey. And they find stories of these little creatures and goblins and everything all the way back um, to where they were doing some, I think they were called charcoal burning, uprooting of the big trees above it 
to a well being dug in the area. Everything that has to do with manipulating the earth around that area has caused stories of these little creatures uh, showing up. And here's the more of the X Files vibe. You know, is it is it supernatural versus science? You know, and just yeah, it's it's a familiar comfort for me because I loved the X Files. So the other thing I thought was cool here, and you kind of touched on it a bit, they. For scientists, usually in sci-fi movies, especially this era, at least to me, like they come across like the scientists are usually like super scientists and never wrong. And they kind of get to the solution of their problem fairly quickly and easily and without a whole lot of roadblocks. But they go through they go through a couple like wrong thought paths in this and, you know, show them correct their path and, you know, change direction and whatnot. So I thought that was kind of cool, too, and a more lifelike mm-hmm. uh portrayal well it makes it more dynamic you know yeah. it's not you it's know, just it's, not yeah exactly there's like more than one facet there mm-hmm. it's pretty deep well Quater- it just goes to the excellent writing again yeah yeah well Quatermass returns to the pit to find that the object has been fully um uncovered and it looks awful thick to be a missile <laughs> to me i mean it's got fins and everything so it looks like a spaceship to me now, they actually have got uh, one of the uh, bomb disposal guys, which I thought was kind of odd. He's actually got an acetylene torch and is trying to cut it. Like, <laughs> if it's a, if you think it's a bomb, why are you trying to cut it with a torch? <laughs> they seem very, um, yeah. But he's got, yeah, the, I, yeah. <laughs> he's got the torch on the metal for five minutes. And not only does it not cut through, it's not even warm when they touch it afterwards. Yeah, Osho would not be happy. This is <laughs> another thing they find out or point out at this time is the metal. If you touch it with your bare hands, you get something like frostbite. It shows a couple of the bomb disposal crew have uh, they take their gloves off and a couple of their fingers are all bandaged up. So there's something even more unusual with the metal. Told you not to touch yourself. <laughs> So Quatermass, well, stop talking about Barbara Shelley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I think we're going to have an, an after dark section on this one. Uh, well, Quatermass suggests to Breen that they, they get a Bazarian drill, which is harder than a diamond. And um, because nothing they can do to cut into the into the spaceship at all. And of course, Breen, he, he's now thrilled at this material because it's like the it, every rocket designer's dream is to have this. This would be great. We got to figure out what's going on. And, and I do like the line he says, the Germans didn't build this, something this extraordinary, then forget the recipe. <laughs> <laughs> they do find a, a hollow chamber, so they actually crawl into it. But there's a, a wall that's preventing them to get anywhere else, and they, they speculate that there is something behind that wall, but they don't know what it is. This is where they find the symbol um, that appears to to be a pentagon or a pentagram or something. It, they don't, you don't really get a good view of it on the screen, I thought. But there was something there that Quatermass says is a symbol used in ancient magic. So, ooh. Ooh. <laughs> you 
you know, again, I, I love the science versus supernatural here. And I love that really, if you look at a, like a lot of the old legends, I mean, even if we take it in the, out of films and into reality, um, if you look at some of the old beliefs, you know, the old thoughts about why people thought they had to put a, you know, a stake in somebody to keep them from coming out of the ground. You know, that's kind of what turned into the vampire story and why, you know, garlic is really kind of a healing agent. And that's why that kind of got incorporated into the vampire legend. It's just, if you look at how our history as a people have kind of turned these very scientific things into supernatural because we just didn't understand the science behind it. It's interesting to see some of these things kind of danced around in the movie where, you know, we got the symbol of magic, but it's not magic. You know, there are no demons or ghosts in this house. It's just aliens. You know, it's just this beyond <laughs> science. You know, it's not magic. Yeah, it's just aliens. Don't it's be just, silly. Yeah, it's, it's, just it's, it's this advanced science that we cannot comprehend. So, of course, we're going to attribute it to something a little bit more spooky and, ooh, you know, I just I love that. I don't know if I'm making much sense. I've had no, no coffee. today. No, but I, I love sense. that. Yep. I to- I'm in total agreement. At this point, Quatermass, he climbs out of the rocket because Barbara's there. And they go, he goes to talk to her. Just as he's getting there, a man who's still in the rocket starts to scream. And they find him in there cowering in the rocket and they pull him out. They pull him uh, up to the top to a seat where Quatermass and Barbara and one of the other officers are there. And he says, the guy that was cowering says he saw a figure that came at him and went through the wall. And what I thought was interesting, you know, Barbara immediately says, you know, starts to describe it. And the guy says, yeah, how did you know about it? And Barbara recognizes it as that same hideous dwarf that she'd read in the, the newspaper clippings. And then, of course, uh, she then hands a flask. Barbara hands a flask to the guy that had the problems. So she must have had it in her purse or whatever <laughs> to calm him down. So it's so like a couple more points in her favor. She's carrying a flask. <laughs> <laughs> So he takes a couple shots. Uh, Quatermass tells the other officer, don't let this man talk to anybody else. Let's get him out for some rest. And then he takes a, sh- a swig from the flask as well. Normally I don't do this, but with things going on, I need this. And then we get uh, the introduction to Slat Sladen, the uh, drill expert who has the Brazarian drill that um, Quatermass had recommended. And uh, they have to actually power this thing uh, into a generator outside. And, of course, they bring this uh, drill into that um, area of the ship where they found the Pentagon magic thing, whatever. So he and Quatermass are in there, and they're trying to drill through the wall. Each time they fire up this drill, there's vibrations in that little room that We've got Colonel Breen who's standing just outside. We've got the drill operator and we've got Quatermass, and they're all what looks like an immense pain when they're drilling, but they keep drilling. And they end up doing it three times, and all men are all three men are just getting really sick. And they finally decide that you know nothing's gonna cut this, you know, this isn't gonna cut it, so they decide to to leave. And Roney then turns up with Barbara and um Quatermass is telling him what's going on. And then Roni goes into the rocket and finds that there's a hole where it's been drilling. And what I thought was interesting is, you know, then the, the guy with the drill, he looks in, he says, I didn't do that. That's a lot bigger hole than my drill would have made. And he says, it sort of looks like it's melting. 
And then, of course, then the whole bulkhead starts to fall apart. And Breen, Quatermass, and Roni uh, then see these, these insectoid creatures in this honeycomb structure, which I thought was really, really cool. I love this first look at how they would have ridden in their rocket. It looked so alien, but yet it looked insectoid. What did you guys think of the first look at the their how they rode in the rocket? I thought it was cool. It was definitely alien, so oh, yeah. I thought that was a nice touch. Agreed. Yeah, I thought it just yeah. goes back to the fact that they, you know, they didn't cop out and do the the typical humanoid alien thing. So, and they just it was really well thought out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we could probably credit that to Neil, right? The writer, mm-hmm. because it's just so. right. Yeah. Well, of course, as soon as the bulkhead disappears and air starts getting into this chamber, they start to decay really rapidly. Not only the creatures, but the honeycomb structure. So Quatermass and Roni immediately start to pull the bodies out. And one of the things that I loved is when, you know, we've got the scientists who are immediately, we need to investigate what these things are. Let's take our time, get them out of here. But then you got the bomb disposal guys that are clearly creeped out at what they're seeing and don't want anything to do with it. They're reluctant to even help carry these dead creatures out. I mean, normally you'd see in a movie like this, they would immediately start helping, but this was more, yeah, their humanity was coming through. They didn't want to touch these things, which I thought was cool. Which is a change from when we first have them on the scene when they're trying to clear it out to begin with, because they like come across earlier in the movie when they're trying to clear it out from all the mud and clay, they come across a bone and like, yeah, whatever. And they just toss it aside and just keep going. And now they're like, oh, no, you know. (laughs) Or when they're trying to cut through a bomb shell with an acetylene torch. <laughs> yeah, there's that too. There's that too. But no, we're not going to touch the icky aliens. No. <laughs> so they take these things back to the lab, and we get a, a couple scenes of they're cutting them open, and there's kind of this green goo coming out of them. And what even the scientists, a couple of the scientists, were kind of taken back of what they were seeing. They're... Obviously, they're kind of a, a tripod arrangement of legs that um, they've they've adapted to a planet with the say you know the planet has much lower gravity because of this tripod f- fixture of their legs and how they would move. In fact, I think Roni says perhaps a word world that's even dead now, but maybe five million years ago had life. So there's five million years ago again, <laughs> and then of course both Quatermass and Roni recognize these characters recognize these creatures because they're seen in like cave paintings and artwork and gargoyles and different things and even the christian image of the devil even say at one point because they were horned because they were horned yes now this is the one leap in their thought process that it was the hardest for me to understand is how did they immediately think they were Martians? Why did, why Mars? Why not Venus or what other planet? But I guess it's kind of not that big of a deal, but they immediately says that they were uh, Martians and they then connect them with the ape skeletons that they had found and that the Martians knew that their world was dying, and they actually were visiting Earth to take specimens of early apes back with them and try to 
make them more intelligent using, you know, work, doing surgeries on them or genetic engineering or whatever in an attempt for the Martians to colonize Earth through their indigenous people, which is something I've never heard of in any other movie or story of, of a way to colonize another planet instead of conquering the the people that live there because they knew the obviously the martians knew that the, the structure of their bodies would not survive in the atmosphere of earth so they were basically trying to implant their memories their their being their intelligence into the people that were their bodies were already built to live there and then they figured that the the ship that they had found was there because of they they were bringing some of these ape men back to earth and there was a crash or something and uh, there was some sort of accident so at this point Quatermass and Roni think that you know maybe we're all descendants from the work that these Martians did and of course he <laughs> Quatermass and then this is another reference to, to the old Quatermass he didn't go to his bosses to tell them any of this he goes right to the press to tell everybody else yeah. <laughs> oh yeah well and that was something that you know, Roni did at the very beginning of the movie too. The scientists know, you know, the government's not on their side here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to go straight to the press, you know, and tell them what's up. And of course, Quatermass's bosses are not happy with this at all. (laughs) No, no. You did what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they, uh, they, they call him in and, um, they're going to go with the story that Breen has come up with that the rocket is actually German propaganda weapon, that the Germans set this thing up to look like it was aliens and look like there was um, something going on that really wasn't fired into England. And then hopefully that when it was discovered, England would be so preoccupied with what's going on here, they would not be as well to defend themselves and there would be a panic and everything in the streets. Basically, what's ha- starting to happen now is what Colonel Breen says. Right. Which I thought was an interesting theory. I don't know if the Germans would have actually done that or would have thought of that, but it was an interesting theory. <laughs> it was believable enough. It was believable. Exactly. It was believable <laughs> yeah. enough. Never mind the fact that the metal of the ship is so alien to anything that they've ever seen. And, and a, a green a Breen had earlier had said that Germans wouldn't have made this up and forgot the recipe. Yeah. Never mind, you know, stuff like that. He's, he's trying to find the most logical explanation that can get, get everything passed and we can get on with our lives and everything. He does. And of course they don't believe anything that Quatermass has come up with. Why should they? He's just a scientist. <laughs> So that's the official story, and it's just, it's declared that it's going to be safe for public viewing, even after Quatermass is objecting to it. They actually schedule this giant press conference in the hole, in the pit. Now, the night before, Sladen, the drill guy, comes back to get his equipment. And he goes into the pit, into the rocket to get his stuff, and while he's in there, there's this really big huge windstorm that starts picking up everything all of the equipment starts flying around he's obviously frightened to death of something he's running out of the ship 
runs out of the pit, back onto the streets, and as he's going through, stuff around him is moving and everything. He's causing destruction and chaos everywhere he goes until he collapses in a cemetery. And then uh, Quatermass and Barbara go to see him because the the preacher next to the cemetery has got him in in his chambers or whatever. And Sladen describes what he saw, basically hordes of these creatures leaping in and out of a dark purple sky. And Sladen actually at one point says that he was part of it before he passes out. And Quatermass realizes that what he's seeing, what Slater's been seeing is sort of a memory of, of life on the planet. Something that's been implanted in our conscious memories from when they were doing the experiments on humans way back when. And this thing in the pit is, or is getting energy from all the electronics around it and is triggering this vision in people. And also other faculties that we don't have, like telekinesis, and that's what's causing all these windstorm and things moving around is actually telekinesis. But they don't have any kind of proof that any of the bosses are going to buy. So they've got to do something to try to get some proof. So they go back to Roni's brain scan device that we saw earlier. So now that comes back into play. And they hook up Quatermass to it. And Quatermass tries to replicate everything that the drill guy was doing to try to recreate that so they could basically record his thoughts and memories and see if they can get this on film. So he's trying to do everything, and it stuff starts to fly around again, starts to move, but Quatermass isn't seeing the memory that was described. But Barbara does, because she's there as well. And she, in one of the most... One of the, the her best scenes, you know, she's just staring at Quatermass. Like, I can see it. Let me have it. I can see it. And of course, Quatermass calls Roni over and says, "Barbara can see it." So they put the the colander on her head, <laughs> and they get a recording of what the drill guy was explaining that he saw. This is a whole creepy <laughs> thing. This whole sequence is. Intense. Yes, very intense. I love everything flying around and their performances. I mean, I can't imagine Dunleavy doing what Kier did as Quatermass in this scene and through the rest of the movie, actually, because as much as Quatermass is our lead guy, he's out of control in a lot of this. And I can't imagine Dunleavy taking that approach. Um, Kier is not infallible as Quatermass. And I mean, I love his performance, and I love Barbara Shelley's. Yes. Well, she's amazing. Yeah, this is where I really loved her performance. I mean, doing that, and then the next scene, they bring in all of the, the top-level people. You know, Colonel Breen is there and the, a whole bunch of other people, and they show the recording that they, Barbara Shelley had made, and which is, as I said earlier, one of more one of the more creepy scenes in the film, that one, you know, leading up to it with the, what we just talked about and then actually seeing the vision and how Quatermass is describing what you're seeing is, is these Martians are basically killing each other. There's some sort of chaos going on. Their world is being destroyed and they're tearing each other apart and they're jumping around, jumping into the sky and everything. And this whole time that he's talking about it, Everybody's watching the film. If you look at Barbara Shelley, she is recoiling in fear. She is 
rolling herself up into a ball, not wanting to watch this again. She's she's already seen it, and just the whole that whole scene just is powerful to me. And then all the air is taken out of it when the military is like, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> the military is like, yeah, this is nice, but you know, you're still buying into the German propaganda and everything. Yeah, and that's Which, the story. We're, yeah. That's the story we're going with. This is clearly just a bunch of hallucinations. You know, we're going to go with what? Yeah. Well, that doesn't end well. That doesn't end well. <laughs> so we we start the, this whole press conference down in the pit where they actually have to bring in a whole bunch of extra electricity and power to power all of the cameras and everything, including a camera in the rocket. Because, this you know, is a big red flag, man. You start bringing in <laughs> that much power to where there's a rocket. No. No. And Breen is like, you know, yeah, it's perfectly safe. There's no problem. And, you know, Quatermass has already said this thing feeds off power and, you know, so they're giving this interview and Breen's like, everything's okay. And then we get a couple of shots from outside and there's a whole bunch, you know, tons of people out there for it. And even a local bar where they have to watch it on the telly because they can't get too close to it because of all the other people there. You know, this is happening in our neighborhood and we still have to watch it on the telly. And well, once again, Quatermass uses the press, you know, is in the presence of the press when he starts talking, you know, popping off again. Oh, yeah. He's just during the press conference. Breen, is, you know, are there any questions? And the press is asking questions. And Quatermass, I've got a question. Are you a coward or a fool? Like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, as all this starts going off, the ship starts to glow. It starts to feed off on the, on this power and it, not just glow, but it's it looks like veins and arteries and everything in the in the ship it really looks creepy it's like it's yeah. coming alive uh-huh. stuff starts to fly around in the room um a, one of the head government people gets pinned under a camera there's chaos people start screaming and start fighting each other they they run out into into the streets um Barbara Shelley or Barbara, never can remember. Just Barbara. Barbara, Just Barbara. Barbara Judd. Um, and Quatermass tries to rescue her to get her out of there. There's scenes which are really, really creepy of, you know, there's maybe one guy that's running in fear and then all of a sudden all these other people with complete blank expressions on their faces surround the guy. And they all of a sudden stuff starts flying at him, you know, bricks and uh, pieces of buildings and pieces of wood and everything until they kill him. But no, nobody's moving. Nobody has any expression on their face. It's intense. This is where the movie, as if the movie hadn't already gotten this to this point, but this is where the movie gets really big. Yes. Because it's not just something's going down in the underground station. It's now affecting the city and above ground and people who you know, had no connection to any of this. They're now being impacted and influenced. And it's, it's a really good sequence. It's like a roller coaster that once it starts, man, it's just, it's a ride and it's a, it's so well done. Yeah. Roni ends up finding Quatermass because Quatermass and Barbara get separated in the chaos. And Roni pulls him into the bar that we saw earlier with the telly. And it's just the two of them in there. And Quatermass is obviously not quite in control. He's Roni seems fine. In fact, he gets to the point where, you know, he's trying to give him some whiskey, give Quatermass some whiskey to calm down. And at one point, Quatermass all of a sudden just... You don't understand. That was the previous Quatermass. That doesn't have any effect on me. (laughs) (laughs) 
And at one point, Quatermass just gets this blank look on his face and starts walking at Roni. And Roni finally snaps him out of it, and, and Quatermass is explaining, you know, all I wanted to do was kill you. I just, I just wanted to kill you. And so Roni, obviously, there's something different about his DNA or his makeup that it's not affecting him. And there's there's a few other people that you see in the chaos that it's not affecting, and of course those people are the ones those are the ones that the other people are trying to kill. At the same time, the glowing spaceship is sort of morphed into this giant creature that's kind of a, a smoke like appearance, glowing several stories tall over the city now. And obviously, it's radiating out from him this chaos through London. They're, they're inferring that now, you know, most of London is starting to feel the effects of whatever this is going on. And people are trying to kill each other. They're destroying everything. Basically, similar scenes to what we saw in those memories from Mars. Quatermass and Roni, they, Quatermass remembers that one of the things that fought ancient evil was iron. Something that I guess wasn't on Mars for some reason. And they also figure that this thing is made up of electricity, and if they can ground him, maybe that will take care of it. Maybe it'll, it'll destroy it. So they f- see this giant crane near where the aberration has appeared. So they decided to go over there and move the crane over to try to ground the character with the, with the iron of the crane. So Roni starts climbing up there. Quatermass sees um, some other people going crazy, trying to kill somebody, and then he, then he spots uh, Barbara. So Roni tells Quatermass to go and help Barbara. At the same time, Roni's made it to the top of the crane, released its safeties and everything, and all of a sudden it starts to move right towards the creature. Yep. And he's, <laughs> he's sitting there at the end, of, and there's nothing he can do at this point. And he's just staring at the creature, and the creature's just staring right back at him. And of course, yeah. when the... Um, of course, we're going to spoil the film now. But they, As if we haven't already they, spoiled most of it. Yeah. But, but this, this is what we do here. Yes, but this ending is amazing. When the, when the thing hits, of course, there's a giant electrical explosion, and he is grounded, and the creature's destroyed. And then everybody starts to calm down. And the ending, we just see Quatermass and Barbara. They're standing a few feet apart from each other. Both look like they've had the shit kicked out of them basically and this somber music starts to play and the credits start to roll but i just love the scene of the two of them together looking like it's over we've been through hell but it's over yeah yeah they so this whole finale i mean obviously like derek said this is when the movie got big and it got crazy so when roni started climbing up the side of this crane I knew what they had in mind because they explained it and they did a good job. They didn't, it wasn't like an info dump on that a lot of these um, sci fi movies with scientists being your big heroes do. They'll dump out some, you know, kind of Star Trek esque jargon and whatnot. They didn't do that here. So that was really well. They explained clearly and concisely what they were going to do. But at the same time, once Roni starts climbing, gets up there at the top, it hit me. It's like, I don't know exactly what he's going to do because they show the faraway shots. This crane's pretty far away. 
from the creature. Um, I thought he was going to climb in there and try and actually, you know, work the crane controls and move it over there. But no, he starts climbing out down the arm and it's kind of like, oh, what the hell are you thinking? But uh, once he got down there, because he really, since we're spoiling things in the grand scheme of things, he got lucky that, well, Roni himself didn't get lucky, but it's for as far as his plan, he got lucky that something happened to the structure of that crane that caused it to fall. Because otherwise, I don't know that he would have made it. Just what, from the way they had things lined out. One theory I have, and I, I want to know what you guys think of this. There, Because Roni wasn't affected by everything that was going on. And, and they showed a couple other people that weren't affected going crazy. Were, were there some people that were descendants from this work that the Martians were doing? And were there some people that weren't? And is that why Roni was a descendant of just regular um, evolution? And that's why he wasn't affected by the events that were going on. What do you guys think of that? Uh, there's some sort of, I don't know. I mean, they don't really. Gene or something yeah. in his DNA that kept him immune from all that. So I, I don't know. Yeah, they don't really go into that that much. I mean, it's really kind of hard because it's not really brought up to the last 10 minutes of the film. Yeah, that's the one thing that they didn't explain clearly. Uh, which is saying a lot for a movie of this type. So, <laughs> but I do. I, I don't mean that as a you know, I don't mean that as a bad thing. I mean the, everything that they did, they did a, such a great job of explaining everything throughout this movie. This is the only thing I felt they slid on. Well, I like the fact that the way that they took out the aberration was old school science. It wasn't something you know we have to build this hydrogen nuclear device bomb thing no it was we had to ground it and yeah. you know something old like this that made sense it, it was yeah, the, that was the right thing to do it goes back to the superstition versus science exactly. thing, you know? i mean it, at one point i'm sure somebody thought well iron is what fights monsters no <laughs> yeah. iron is what you know grounds things and it's just i like i i respond very well to that in my storytelling they uh, did anybody else? Did either of you get a um, diehard vibe with Roni climbing up on this crane? <laughs> this is not the first time diehards come up on the show, right? especially when he climbs out to the end. And his big plan is he's going to start swaying back and forth to get it to move. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious, especially since he crawled over the control box. <laughs> yeah, the very McLean <laughs> move. Yeah. <laughs> I liked the movie a lot. There's a couple of things I wanted to comment on. Nigel Neal loved it. He thought it was great. He thought the special effects were diabolical. He wasn't a big fan of those. But he was even contracted by Hammer to do another Quatermass film. It never happened. Instead, that got turned into a television series that I've never seen but reading about sounds fascinating. Set in the near future, having to do with teenagers joining a cult that he's got to deal with. It was also released as a film called The Quatermass Conclusion. Back in the, uh, let's see, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, John Carpenter, the filmmaker, is a big fan of Nigel Neal. And I don't know, Casey, I know, Scott, you're not a huge, you know, like modern slasher or horror movie fan. But Casey, did you pick up any things in this film that you might have seen in other John Carpenter movies? Uh, yeah, I, I can see that. So I can't most, necessarily pinpoint him, but it definitely does have some feel of that in there. There's two big things. Uh, first of all, Hobbs End is the name of the small town in, in the Mouth of Madness. Ah. So there's that. But additionally, my favorite Carpenter film is Prince of Darkness. 
and it's written by Martin Quatermass. Well, it's actually John Carpenter, but he used the pen name Martin Quatermass, which was a reference to Nigel Neal. And there is a very creepy scene in Prince of Darkness where the homeless people who live around the church where everything's going down are taken over by this entity, this thing. And they just stand around and move very silently and block people from exiting certain areas. And watching the Quatermass in the Pit film, and you're seeing how the people are kind of surrounding people at the end of the movie under the influence of the Martians or the giant locust or whatever. I felt like that's where Carpenter got that because it's very similar to that. So I thought that was kind of neat. Well, it sounds by the tone of your guys' voice, you both enjoyed this film quite a bit. Yeah, I love it. Oh, yeah. I think this is great science fiction, and I think as far as if you compare it to other science fiction flicks of that era, I think this is like probably the cream of the crop. It's pretty high up there because the writing's so high above a lot of others of that era. Yeah, I need to read more Nigel Neal. This one has turned me into a convert. I really enjoyed this. It's not going to make its way into my top <laughs> five, unfortunately. Sorry, Scott. What? But I really did enjoy this. Yeah. I'm just glad you guys dug it. I was, I w- I'm always a little worried when I pick, especially since I don't have that huge history with Hammer. And when I go out on a limb and, and actually pick up a movie that's one that I like, I'm, I'm always afraid that you guys aren't going to like it. So I'm, I'm jazzed that you guys liked it. So This is definitely from the Qu- Quatermass films I've seen. I think this is definitely, while it may not be my favorite Quatermass, I think it's my favorite Quatermass film for sure. Oh, that's a good way to look. That's a good way to put it. Cause I love Brian Dunleavy. I really yeah. do. I like that style of belligerent. I don't care who you are. I'm the scientist. <laughs> damn it. Kind of approach. But I, I really enjoyed this film. It's a better science fiction film than a lot of things that were coming out in the air. Like Casey said, it's what mid to late sixties. There's a lot of things happening in here that make this movie timeless. You know, it's very relevant today as it was back then. It's, it's got the military versus the science. It's got the humanities and humanity to, uh, to man kind of in there towards the end. It's, it's very relevant. It's, it's a timeless movie. Very well done. I mean, it's Hammer, and Hammer is firing on all cylinders at this point. You know, they got Bernard Robinson doing the production design. They've got Roy Wade Baker doing the direction. I mean, they know what they're doing, and fortunately, they put together a wonderful science fiction film that I am going to watch over and over again. And I've got to get my hands on that Blu-ray, Scott. Yes, <laughs> I highly recommend the Blu-ray. It's on my Amazon wish list, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this doesn't this doesn't sneak its way into my top five, but it's in the top ten. Yeah, I was going to say that top ten for sure. Very cool. Well, I'm glad you guys liked it. Good choice, Scott. Thank you. Good job, Atta boy. Since it turned out you made a good choice, you can officially have a happy birthday. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Was there anything else you guys would like to say about uh, Quatermass in the Pit? We love you, Barbara Shelley. <laughs> well, if you love Barbara Shelley, <laughs> or if you love us and would like to send us a message, there's wow, a, there's a, quite a few ways to, to get a hold uh. of us. <laughs> you can uh, give us a call at area code 765-203-1951. That is a Google Voice n- number, which will cut you off at three minutes. 
Uh, you can also send us an email at podcast at 1951downplace.com. In three minutes, we will cut you. That's right. If you want to record an MP3, you can send it to that address as well. Our website is 1951downplace.com, where we have uh, links to all of our episodes, uh, including each of our top fives and uh, our future episodes. And uh, do you guys ready to talk about what we're going to cover throughout next year? Hey, before we get to that, can we just mention real quick? Uh, sure. First of all, one, just kind of live on the show, do we want to at one point maybe do a top 10 list, just the three of us? I know we've done our top five, but we always keep saying it's going to be in our top 10, top 10. Do we want to do our like number th- six through 10 sometime next year? Just kind of a, as a list? Or is that going to be too hard? Down. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> Did I beat the mute button there? Yeah. <laughs> We just heard down. <laughs> Place. Yes. I'd be willing to give it a shot. It I would might be ha- tough because, yeah. I know that position six through ten would probably change quite a bit. Yeah, that's true. Well, and the other thing is, too, uh, you were mentioning our contact information. We have some feedback from listeners that we just haven't gotten to yet. So if you've called in or written in, Scott's sitting on the contact. Or, it's all my the, fault. I'll yeah, take, Scott's I'll take full somebody responsibility. Somebody was disorganized. <laughs> so, somebody had a birthday this month and was too busy partying, and I don't know. <laughs> it is all my fault, and I apologize, and we will get to that. Hopefully, uh, I will get that out to my co-host so we can uh, respond to it on our next episode. Yeah, you know, the truth is Scott was just too busy going to Monster Bash last month, getting all the, these awesome recordings from the Hammer Girls. And those recordings are coming soon. I've been uh, editing them. I'm just uh, waiting on a few more pieces, and we'll be able to uh, send those out through the regular feed. So those are coming. Stay tuned for that. Anyway, Casey's on a timetable. I really need a cup of coffee. Let's wrap this up by talking about what we're doing next year. Okay. Well, next month. Next month. Is my birthday month. Yep. And I'm picking a movie that I'm not overly familiar with, but darn it. You know, I'm in a Phantom of the Opera mood, so we're doing the Hammer Phantom of the Opera film. And then in January, we've got The Flanagan Boy, which is another film noir, which was called uh, Bad Blonde here in the U.S. And then uh, 2015 February, uh, Casey, you ready to tell the world what your birthday pick's going to be? The Vengeance of She. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. That's my anti-birthday pick. <laughs> so we do it the next month. No. My birthday pick for February next year is going to be Vampire Circus, one of my first uh, intros into Hammer. And it's just such a weird and unique flick. So let's do it. There's a really good Blu-ray of that out there. There is. It's a great Blu-ray. Which I think I have. So I'm not seeing it, but I do have the Blu-ray. I've been I I picked it up at a con and was holding on to it till it actually made our schedules. So looking forward to, to seeing that. Uh, in March, we're going to do the Pirates of Blood River. Arg, arg, ahoy! And, <laughs> and April, we're going to do uh, <laughs> Die Die My Darling. And then we're after that. This is uh, new to our schedule. We hadn't talked about this yet, but in May of 2015, we're going to do Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed from 1969. Oh, guys, I saw that last month at the theater. Oh, wow. Cushing is amazing in that. <laughs> in, I mean, more so than anything else. I mean, it's, it's just <laughs> awesome. 
And then in June of 2015, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb from 1964, another uh, mummy film, a second oh, one. Oh, guys. <laughs> <let me know. laughs> I love mummy movies. I love my mummy. And then in July, we're going to do another listener pick month. So we will be putting a um, poll out into our Facebook group here pretty soon for for that. Then in August, Straight On Till Morning from 1972. In September, A Challenge for Robin Hood from 67. In October, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, 1968. And then for my next birthday month, next November, we're going to go way back. We're going to do Phantom Ship from 1935. Oh, yeah. Bela Lugosi appeared in a Hammer film. That one's going to be a treat. <laughs> so that's as far out as we've got the schedule because Derek hasn't told me what he wants to do for his next birthday. The Vengeance of <laughs> She. Which will not be it. <laughs> I don't want to think that far ahead to my next birthday pick because that means I'll be 42. Well, me too. Uh-huh. How is it from that side, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I was about ready to make some nice Douglas Adams reference you both being 42, and then you went to say that I'm old. So I mean, it was, you're, not, you're not that old, Scott. I mean, it's if anything, you're proving that it's possible for us. You're like tra- blazing the trail. <laughs> <laughs> he just asked how the view was on the other side. He, you know, you don't have to be so sensitive. <laughs> My eyes are bad. I can't see that far back. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's our upcoming schedule. <laughs> All <And> right. <laughs> so any last words before we end? I love you guys. <laughs> I love, you guys are awesome. I love Barbara Shelley. Well, that goes without saying, but. I was going to say, though, it was, what I was going to say is because originally my birthday pick was going to be die, die, my darling. Then I realized we're covering it two months later. Have you seen Die, Die, My Darling? No, I haven't. But the only reason I wanted to pick it was because of Stephanie Powers. Oh, okay then. (laughs) Did I point out... It's all good. Did I point out that it's three dudes doing the show? (laughs) I don't know if we've talked about that very much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. No, this has been fun. This was a great pick, Scott. I really appreciate it uh, that you picked a, a really, really good one. I was really hoping I wouldn't like it so that we could do like reverse Captain Kronos thing but <laughs> yeah this is a good pick so congrats on getting older Scott <laughs> well thank you I appreciate that <laughs> it does beat the alternative so <laughs> and on that we'll see you guys next month <laughs> alrighty bye bye <laughs>